0: So good evening, Uh, I am spiffier than usual so something must be happening Um, but seriously uh, I was charged several weeks ago with uh, the task of bringing the sermon for this evening which seems now like several very short weeks ago. Now I hope that uh, being a beginner, a neophyte here that uh, this is a daunting task for me so grant me lots of grace and charity okay <laughs> uh in these matters and pray that um you know as as pastor tiago was was praying that that the lord would hide me behind the the truth of his word and and the shadow of his cross so uh with that said let's go ahead and pray all right like i said so uh let's go ahead and pray the Lord of hosts, we praise you, God who knows all the stars by name, God who, who leads them forth by number, God who holds together the universe by the word of his power, God whose counselor is no one. Uh, God, I pray tonight that you would be our counselor, Lord, that you would pour forth your spirit on the dry ground, Lord, that we may drink, and Lord, that you would give us your food from heaven that we may eat, amen. Uh, if you will go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter seven, Romans chapter seven, uh, we'll be reading verses seven through 25 tonight. Uh, and I'll be quite honest with you, uh, in my hope to leverage another sermon out of this. Uh, just kidding, kind of. Um, I will be talking instead of the relevant theological aspects brought forward by the passage, so uh, and mainly others, in order to lay down a basis, hopefully, uh, for it in its, to, prior to its exposition. Uh, so uh, I apologize in advance, but uh, in other words, I too will be giving an introduction to, to uh, tonight's um, uh, t- tonight's word. Um, last thing before we get into it, if you have a copy of our Confession of Faith, I encourage you to break that out. Uh, if you don't have a copy of one, that's fine. There's, Uh, Most of us have phones. You can Google it. Uh, Arbca I think, has a copy on their website, Founders, and so on and so forth. So uh, I'll be covering uh, a good bit from Chapter 6 of our confession titled, Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment Thereof. So, uh, By way of introduction, though, as I considered Scripture uh, and a corresponding topic uh, on which I might preach tonight, uh, unfortunately, my lack of any real experience, not an excuse, just that's the reality. Um, uh, but as it is, I undertook the task anyway. Uh, but as I, I thought about this, I recalled something that was sort of said to me as a younger Christian uh, from a pastor friend of mine. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but hopefully he'll forgive me for that. He said, uh, Richard, if you do not have a correct doctrine of man, the fall, sin, the ethics thereof, and God's justice thereto, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to faithfully and fully draw out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, at the time I heard this statement, uh, of course, I didn't understand the implications that were contained though, there in those words, but um, as it is, so then, uh, while I'm sure you all love to hear lots and lots of uh, sermons on on sin and how Adam stands at the head of all such sin. And while tonight, unfortunately, I neither have the expertise or the time to draw out all those things mentioned, uh, man, the fall, sin, ethics, and God's justice, uh, I do want to focus on at least one aspect mentioned from that aforementioned list, uh, and specifically an aspect regarding sin itself. So, before we start, I wanted just to give a brief overview of the focus of what tonight's sermon would be on under three basic headings. Uh, the first deals with the origin and source of sin. Uh, not from the beginning of creation, though that's correct. We would affirm that sin begins uh, round about Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, but in the chronological sense, no, I'm talking of in our own personal lives. So... In other words, I'd like to talk briefly and touch on corruption in general. The second, perhaps more relevant to us, I think as a church, deals with remaining corruption in the believer, uh, which is really what I intend to try to uh, focus in on, on tonight's sermon, uh, indwelling sin, if it, as it were. And the third uh, is the practical implications or lessons that we might take from building off of those first two points, hopefully. So uh, that's kind of the plan there. So then, before we get to the first point, hopefully you already have your Bibles open. Let's go ahead now and read our text, Romans 7, 7 through 25, so that we can uh, have it in our minds as we continue. The Apostle says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now... No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me with my flesh, the law of sin. Amen. So that brings us to heading one, the source and origin of sin. Uh, Now here, hopefully I won't talk too long. Uh, We would, I hope, assert and confirm that corruption, a sinful nature, is present and reigns exclusively and quite clearly in the unregenerate man. Our particular Baptist forebears in chapter 6 of our confession, being the careful and I believe the precise theologians that they were, have placed already the source of guilt and original corruption, uh, components, not to, not to uh, glaze over it, but uh, the components uh, we mean when we say original sin, uh, inherited corruption and imputed guilt. So, two aspects, I'm talking about uh, the former. So they they have already placed it in our confession squarely on the shoulders of our first parents in paragraphs 1 through through 3 in chapter 6. And especially in paragraph 3, which says the following. They, Adam and Eve, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed. To all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. But they go further. In chapter 6 and paragraph 4, which has, I think, special relevance to tonight's sermon, let's listen to what the confession has to say there. "...from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions." So, if I may point out, uh, the assumption that our particular Baptist forebears are making here is that original corruption is itself indeed sin. where it is not meant that actual transgressions are real and true sin only. But simply and more accurately observable and overt. The paragraph just cited states a fact that I believe bears repeating, as it is crucial to understanding the entire argument I think that we're making. Though it may be firmly in most of our minds already, that distinction is that our forebears made between original corruption and actual transgression. That is, a sinful nature, as it were, and a sinful nature breaking forth into actual, observable sins. May I say something obvious about this? Um, men and women people do not sin and therefore become sinners. And I think this is uh, one of the takeaways here. Uh, the sin, they sin because they are sinners already. Um, so again, men and women people do not sin and therefore become sinners. They sin because they are sinners already. That's important to grab onto, I think. So says our confession, and more importantly, so says our Lord uh, in the Gospel of Mark, for example. Uh, we could expound, I think, expound the entire Sermon on the Mount and prove that point, but I won't do that to you. Um, uh, I don't have the time to, anyway. Um, Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, says the following. From the words of our Lord, he says... That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And again in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah says much of the same. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it or know it? Well, what's the answer? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways. Remember, we're talking about the heart. According to the results of his deeds. Now I'm aware that Jeremiah 17 has plenty of context surrounding these few ver- verses, but know well why I, quote, uh, why I quote not only verse 9, but verse 10 also. Uh, the Lord certainly regards the heart as being under His law and will judge that as well. Further, it's quite clear from our Lord's words and from the prophet that there is a difference or distinction to be made between having that evil heart that we're talking about and the actual deeds that flow therefrom. Lewis Burkhoff in his systematic theology affirms much of the same and says that sin is, has both its seat in the heart and that it does not consist only in overt acts of sin. Listen to the following quotes by Burkhoff. Sin does not reside in any one faculty of the soul, but in the heart, which in scriptural psychology is the central organ of the soul out of which are the issues of life. And from the center. And from the center, its influence and operation spread to the intellect, the will, affections, in short, to the entire man, including his body. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's a description of total depravity. Sin does not consist only in overt acts, but also in sinful habits and in a sinful condition of the soul. And if the question still be raised whether the thoughts and affections of the natural man called flesh, or sarx in Greek, should be regarded as constituting sin, it might be answered by pointing to such passages as the following. And he gives a list, including Romans 7, Galatians 5, 17, 24, and others. In conclusion, he says, it may be said that sin may be defined as a lack of conformity, and this is important, to the moral law of God, either in act, Disposition or state? Let's take a moment to ponder that. I think there are many important points that could be taken uh, from both the verses cited and from Berkhoff, but I think the most important are with Berkhoff agreeing with Scripture here. The words of Jesus in the passages read, that refute in Mark 7 and Luke 6, the Jewish leader's false righteousness. These verses do not merely, and are not primarily, I would propose, to tell us what is and isn't sin. For for, for certainly these are not exhaustive, though that's a part of it. No, he's saying exactly what I think chapter 6-4 of our confession is saying. The origin and source of sin is man's heart. That those observable transgressions, which, if you call that list carefully, many are inward flow from a corrupt heart which is itself, that is, that sinful nature. Sinful. Oh, um, by the way, the words spoken here, especially regarding evil thoughts in some of those verses, presuppose a standard definition for evil. Uh, and thus also good. Uh, that's important, as we should always understand, that God's standard of good and evil isn't relative. Relative. That is, there isn't a middle ground. There's no neutrality to be found. One is either the friend of God or the enemy of God. More briefly, no one, I repeat, no one comes into the world neutral. You could see Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, or Psalm 51:5 for that. There's certainly more that could be expounded here, more passages that could be given to support the general theology articulated here. Uh, But now let's turn to our second heading, or point. Remaining corruption in the believer. Um, I think the true task tonight before us is is this, remaining corruption in the believer, which is why it's called remaining. Uh, What is the relationship between us, the redeemed, and this original corruption or sinful nature previously stated? I think building on what has already been laid down, I'd like to address again uh, by begin touching on uh, this subject by reading the very next paragraph of our confession, chapter six and paragraph five. It says this, the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated and although it be through Christ's pardon and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin again something i'd like to point out to support what we've already covered under our first point and heading if the corruption of nature that is our inward corruption is truly and properly sin for the believer if this is so then what shall we say of this corruption in the unregenerate person i think Remember how I said it was implied in paragraph 4. Yes, I propose it is also truly and properly sin. Indeed, the corruption of nature, even in a redeemed person, and even the desire to do evil itself is sin. I'll state it as directly as I possibly can. Uh, Your sin is still just as categorically wicked and abominable as it ever was. That is, your sins don't become somehow inherently more pleasing, pleasing or lessened in force against the Creator. And I would love to talk about more of this at another time, but I think that, um, I think that I'll stop there. Uh, listen to what John Calvin has to say after this on speaking of pervading corruption, uh, even in the saints uh, from his institutes. Uh, he's going to use a word here that uh, I think uh, bears explaining. He uses the word concupiscence. Uh, That, uh, without its context, just simply means strong desire. Uh, But in the context that we're speaking here, generally translated uh, in Greek as epithemia or sometimes uh, 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 pathema means sinful desires or corruption uh, to kind of just give a brief gloss over that. Um, So he's gonna say this. Those who term it concupiscence, use a word not very inappropriate, provided it were added, and this, however, many will by no means concede, that everything which is in man, from the intellect to the will, from the soul even to the flesh, is defiled and pervaded with this concupiscence, or to express it more briefly, that the whole man is himself nothing else than concupiscence. Calvin is, by the way, addressing uh, a specific context. Um, He's addressing Session 5, Canon 5 of the Council of Trent. Um, A Roman Catholic council, which met met over the course of 18 years in the mid-16th century, Uh, this particular council denies the true sinfulness of remaining corruption uh, after baptism, which, uh, not to get too far into their theology, uh, includes the infusion of sanctifying grace or what they would call, uh, properly, regeneration. So there's that difference. Uh, in other words, as even some modern evangelical churches I would purport teach, sin does not become sin unless it is consented unto. Um, so I have to take an aside here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a lover of history, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to read this portion of the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent. Uh, So bear with me, because it becomes clearly obvious that the language of our confession contradicts and is likely influenced by this very session. Um, Here's Canon 5, Session 5 from the Council of Trent. If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in baptism, disagree, uh, the, the guilt of original sin is remitted, Or even asserts that the whole of that which is the true and proper nature of sin is not taken away, but says that it is only erased or not imputed, let him be anathema. For in those who are born again there is nothing that God hates. Nothing that God hates. Because there is no condemnation to those who are truly buried together with Christ by baptism into death, that's a quite a paraphrase of Romans eight and six. Um, who walk not according to the flesh, but putting off the old man and putting on the new, who is created according to God, are made innocent, immaculate, pure, harmless, and beloved of God. Heirs indeed of God, but joint heirs with Christ, so that there is nothing whatever to retard their entrance into heaven. But this holy synod confesses and is sensible that in the baptized there remains concupiscence, or an incentive to sin which, whereas it is left for our exercise, cannot injure those who consent not, but resist manfully by the grace of Jesus Christ. Yea, he who shall have striven lawfully shall be crowned. This concupiscence, which the apostles sometimes call sin, which we just read from in Romans 7, this holy synod declares that the Catholic Church has never understood it to be called sin and here's the words, as being truly and properly sin in those born again. Because, but because it is of sin and inclines to sin only. Can you hear the language of chapter 6, paragraph 5? Contra Rome. In other words, the confession is contradicting the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence or corruption. Corruption and filling its real meaning back in. Brothers and sisters, I know I don't have to say this hopefully by now, but this is error. Let's go back and let the apostle explain why that is so, and what practical implication it has for us as believers. Well, let's turn to James, James 1. What about James 1, 14 through 15? it's been asked before, uh, and it keeps coming up, uh, so I wanted to address it. it, it does, doesn't it clearly contradict what we've been saying? Um, and again, I address this uh, because not only in Roman Catholic circles is this concupiscence is truly and properly sin denied, but also in antinomian circles and, uh, again, even some mainline Protestant denominations. So it says... But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You know, honestly, I I think that scores of well-trained exegetes here can give the proper meaning of these verses. Um, I'm not included in that, but I see beneficial, nor could I think of a better answer to let one of our uh, particular Baptist forebearers answer it for us, Nehemiah Cox, um, who was likely one of the two editors of our confession. So let's let him give the meaning of the passage, arguing against sort of here, in this context, against sort of a rogue and, well, in honest opinion, heretical Baptist named Thomas Collier. So Cox says in his work, *Vindiciae veritatis, um, written in response to Collier's gross errors, uh, He says this regarding James 1, 14 through 15. The evident scope of the apostle is not to teach men to justify the wicked lustings of their heart, as Mr. C doth. So in this this work he calls him Mr. C throughout. It's um, prevalent. Uh, But to prove that the spring of all the wickedness of man is in his own breast and it will be in vain for him to think of shifting off the blame to any other. It is granted indeed that the apostle saith, Lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. And this conceiving of sin is by the consent of the will, agreeing to the commission thereof. But by sin here, it is evident that actual transgression is intended. And what saith the apostle of this lust? Verily. That it tempteth, draweth away the soul from God, and enticeth it to sin, and it worketh thus as a principle in the soul. It is man's own lust. Shall we then suppose actual transgression to be a sin, and the working of that principle in a man that disposeth to it not to be so? Hath God no regard to the hearts and principles of men, and the habits, of their souls. Do they not come under His law? Or is it not the habit of grace, grace as well as the exercise thereof, and a man denominated gracious therefrom. So see here he's, he's saying what James will say in chapter 2, that true faith produces good works. On the other side of the coin, a truly corrupt heart produces evil works. He says, in plain terms, to suppose the lustings of a corrupt heart after all wickedness is no harm, unless they be fully consented to, is impious. Brothers and sisters, to teach that sin isn't sin unless it's overt, actual, or observable is error. Especially, especially as a people who know better. That is, believers. Instead, and this is really the most practical implication, that these things I think have for us knowing that internal corruption remains and is still sin whether it be the state thereof or the first motions thereto it tells us by the proper use of the moral law of God what we should be mortifying and how to walk in a proper Christian manner more on how the law tells us this later as an exposition of our verses in Romans will reveal, and as our brother Hal's already clearly expounded in his commandment series. Uh, for now, though, let's end with some verses from a passage. I would argue a parallel passage to our one in Romans that uh, hopefully for next time, wink, wink, uh, that you can turn there if you like. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. The Apostle says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So just from this passage, four, I think, obvious observations. Paul is referring to believers as he continues his argument against the Judaizers. That's the context of the book. This will help us settle some pervading opinions regarding the passage that uh, we have in the that I had in the bulletin today, uh, Romans seven twenty four through twenty five. Once we address it at some other time. And number two, the flesh, the sinful flesh, and the spirit are always and ever will be at war with one another. Don't forget this. Be watchful. Don't trust it. Further, this very fact shows that the remaining corruption that characterizes the believer's sinful flesh, else this struggle would not be so clearly articulated by Paul. Point three. Things that we please do here refer to the holy desires of the Christian person. The question may be raised in response to this. How do we define do the things you please? Um, I'm going to kind of leave you hanging on that one. But uh, suffice to say that maybe at some later point, we'll see that I think the law of God is assumed here. Number four. The question raised by this verse, verse 18 is natural, I think. What does Paul mean when he says, and this is the question, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. I think the simplest explanation to this harkens back to Paul's argument against the Judaizers. The Judaizers of this passage who would use it primarily as a means unto justification, especially to safeguard themselves against sin. Only as we've learned already, that it would be to their great destruction, as Paul says elsewhere, Romans 7, it only, in terms of using it as a means to obtain righteousness, reveals further the true sinfulness of sin and serves to arouse it. Contrast this with the believer under grace who knows he falls short of God's law and so is led by the Spirit instead to obey it. Finally, the last heading, practical implications. Brothers and sisters, there is much more, I think, that could be said, as I wish I had more time to say it. But let us learn the the lessons from all this that's been said tonight. And they are simply these, just a couple of points. Corruption remains in the believer and his sin itself, as well as the, the desires that characterize it. Um, I'm not trying to be. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to be real depressing here. I guess I know that no one li- likes to talk about sin, but um, I, I want to give, in light of that, some encouragement. Uh, I remember, and it comes to mind, the beginning of paragraph five, chapter six of our confession. It says, "During this life, there is hope." Point two, this corruption with the help of the Spirit of God tells us the very things which we should mortify and so grow in grace. Indeed, it tells us mortification must start with the heart and not simply simply ceasing to cut down observable sins. I I think of a very large oak tree when I think about this. Um, And cutting off the limbs, I think like the power line workers and stuff like that, They cut off the limbs of those oak trees, and what does that do to the oak tree? It certainly doesn't kill it. Um, No, you have to uproot it. Um, You have to uproot it. Finally, it tells us that we can never, in our own strength, or through empty law-keeping, ever please God. We must be joined with Jesus Christ our Savior first and foremost. Okay, last thing I promise. No, I said that was the last point, but last thing. My friends, let me leave you with a final and I think most important exhortation. We have talked and spoken of the relevance of and under, the relevance of understanding remaining corruption. However, there's another point I'd like to make. You will not be able to mortify a single sin or even lift a finger against it unless you be in Christ I beg, I implore and I solemnly urge that if you have not repented and seized faith in Christ you remain as how I made clear this morning much better than I did uh, under the wrath of God in fact as we have learned from some of these passages you will only serve to increase your transgressions and your culpability at the final day I hope you take this seriously. That God grant you who have not yet known him ears to hear and eyes to see, and that you would lay your sins upon his son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that it would that it would come for our hearts. Lord, that we know that only through the strength of the Savior, that we can un- overcome and mortify these sins, or that we would understand that we must start with the heart, that we must understand what remaining corruption is, and that it does stay, and it does hang around. And, Lord, that we cannot let it grow. We must crucify it, and, Lord, that we must kill it. Lord, let us, none of us here, entertain the notion to sin, even if it's inward. Lord God, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, may we once again read it, understand it, and be kept from error when we do so. Amen.